Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Looks can be deceiving, as we know well. Paul Janeway may resemble Drew Carey wearing a bow tie, a self-described nerdy-looking white guy, but his singing conveys a roar of earth-shaking soul. Janeway is the lead singer of the soul band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. The group performs this weekend at the inaugural Lost Art Music Festival in Douglasville. Later this hour, Paul Janeway tells us about his strict upbringing in rural Alabama, studying to be a preacher, and ultimately finding his own voice in soul music. First, to quote the groundbreaking playwright and actor Anna DeVere Smith, American character lives not in one place or the other, but in the gaps between the places and in our struggle to be together in our differences. This August will mark 30 years since the Crown Heights riots, a tragic clash that erupted between the residents of the densely populated Brooklyn community. Starting tonight, Atlanta's theatrical outfit will commemorate the anniversary with a live stream production of Fires in the Mirror, the masterpiece by Anna DeVere Smith. January Lavoie is the co-director and star of this one-woman show. She joins us now via Zoom. January, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be with you again. (laughs) Oh, likewise. Now, you must have been very young when the Crown Heights riots occurred. Do you remember hearing about the events? Oh, absolutely. I grew up a a little more than an hour outside of New York City. So our local news was New York City news. Mm. And I was a teenager, a young teenager. And I remember it absolutely vividly. I remember seeing the clips, you know, the video clips on the news. And, um, you know, it was we didn't have the sort of 24 hour news cycle then, you know, in the way that we do now. But it was so persistent every morning, every night. So I do. I remember it quite well. And this story is extraordinarily complex. What drew you to it? You know, it's funny you should ask because on the first day of rehearsal last month, I said to everyone, being totally honest, I said, I was asked to do this piece by Matt Torney, the artistic director of Theatrical Outfit, and Adam Immervar, my co-director, In December of 2019. Oh, wow. Approximately one million years ago. Yes. (laughs) So had I known what we all would have been through between then when I said yes and now, I might not have said yes. Not because it's not, it's, it's, it's shocking to me how much more relevant this piece becomes literally every day. But 
not having known how immersed we would all be in the cultural and social dialogue of you know race ethnicity religion how we move through the world and relate to other people not knowing how exhausted <laughs> i personally would be at this this starting line in in may of 2021 i don't think i would have felt like i had it in me luckily for me i did say yes and the last year and a half happened the way it happened and we started rehearsals and i had a lot of doubt but this play has taught me more about myself and the world and humanity every single day every minute that i've worked on it so i'm i'm quite grateful but the things that drew me to it then were oh yes the challenge of this incredible one woman show and anna devere smith's brilliance and oh yes i remember this history vaguely sort of and now it's it's been transformational to be engaged in this in this work for the last few months so for some tragic reasons you mentioned Adam Immervar. You co-directed Fires in the Mirror with him from Theater J, one of the country's leading Jewish theaters. Had you ever worked together before? Adam and I had met um, years ago when he was at the McCarter Theater in Princeton. He was the associate artistic director there for years, and I was in their company of Christmas Carol for many years. And so we did know each other, and I think we worked on a couple of readings together over the years, but we'd never worked on a full production. And when Adam asked me, Adam and Matt asked me to co-direct, I was really intrigued, and I was really honored, and I was also really glad because it gives an actor a level of agency that you don't necessarily have in the normal hierarchy of actor-director. Um, my ability to stop the room anytime I felt it was necessary and say, wait, I think we need to have a conversation about this. Wait, I'm unsure about this. Do we have more information about this? When I'm just merely only uh, an actor, I feel more, I feel more of a responsibility to the to the other parts of the team to get them to be able to see the continuity of what they're looking for and what I'm doing and, and use their outside eyes. So this allowed me to sort of be on both sides at the same time, which was very, very empowering. I can imagine. Fires in the Mirror is considered a pioneering example of the genre known as verbatim theater. Have you worked in this genre before? You know, interestingly enough, I was in graduate school when the Laramie Project opened and I was a house manager in the theater as an intern the night it opened in Denver, Colorado. And that was sort of, you know, I think Anna really did pioneer in many ways this form, but that's a, another very famous example of it where Tectonic Theater Project went to Laramie, Wyoming for years and interviewed, you know, the people who were involved and who knew Matthew Shepard. And I had this experience as a theater student of seeing half the town of Laramie, Wyoming, walk through the doors of the theater at the Denver Center Theater Company and sit in the audience and watch themselves portrayed by a group of actors. So I've been fascinated by this form for a very long time. I've never really engaged it in quite this sort of verbatim way. So it's another, it's another level of, um, of sort of responsibility that I feel as an actor that you don't necessarily have when you're when you're dealing with characters that you know were, were made up out of the playwright's imagination. Yeah. So how do you balance the need to convey someone's personal history as it was spoken in the source interviews with artistic insight? You know, I think I'm very fortunate. One of my other careers is uh, as an audiobook narrator. <laughs> and I've done a lot of work in memoir and um, historical fiction. And these forms all sort of interface with each other and overlap and connect. And one thing, even when I'm doing fiction as an audiobook narrator, and you know, there'll be a hundred characters in a book. I mean, you have to sort of give them all their due. And what I like, the way I like to think about it personally is that when we enter into an artistic space, whether it's a, a book, an audiobook someone's listening to, or the theater, there's a handshake deal that is made between the artist and the, the audience, which is that we all agree that we know that I'm one person, I'm one human being, and I'm going to be a sort of lens for you. 
you know, you have to be able to see through a lens in order to take the picture. So there has to be a certain level of transparency to me. But at the same time, I can shape what you see. You know, I can make it sharper, I can make it blurrier, I can put an effect on it. And I feel like those are sort of the tools at my disposal in interpreting these different human beings for for the, the watcher or the listener, but it's not my job to try and become the person. It's my job to convey the person's thoughts and their story. And so that's sort of the thing I pay the most attention to. Mm. You're modest here, January. You are an award-winning audio narrator, <laughs> um, quite distinguished in your field. Anna Devere Smith is legendary for her intellect as well as her talent. They don't hand out those MacArthur's for nothing. Not at all. <laughs> Were you able to confer with her? Do you know her? I don't know, Anna. Um, you know, it's interesting. Our, our lives are, are sort of touching at this moment because she's been honored this season at the Signature Theater in New York, which is my home theater. So I might have had the opportunity to meet her had I had I still been in New York, but I did move to very happily moved to Atlanta two and a half years ago. And, you know, I've been watching her, I've been reading some of her other writings and working on this piece. And what's most fascinating to me about the way her mind works is that you cannot crack this piece open on the page. I would say it is impossible. We had a lot of great big brains and artistic souls in our process here. And this past week, since we've actually been able to gather in the theater and start working on the piece together and bring, truly bringing these folks to life, it reveals itself. And just last night, you know, around 1030, we were doing something and we overlaid a certain sound cue that Anna uh, asked for in the show with the words that I'm saying. And there was this like moment where everybody in the theater sort of gasped and Adam said, see, this is what she, this is what she was going for. This is what she wanted. But you know, the, the complexity to her understanding of language and storytelling and um, memory and emotion, it's at the highest, highest level. Uh, you know, you can compare her to anyone you want in the field. She's, she's up there. There's no question in anybody's mind that he did it. He is the murderer. He is the stabber. I stayed behind with Norman Rosenbaum. And to see all those cops, shoulder to shoulder, hundreds of cops, so as to constrain us for what we might do, that blew our mind. That really blew our mind. Here we are, the victims of black anti-Semitism at its utmost. And they think that we're going to riot? When have we ever rioted? Okay? That was Anna Devere Smith portraying Rabbi Joseph Spielman in her original performance of Fires in the Mirror. If you are just joining us, we're talking to January Lavoie, the star and director of Theatrical Outfits version of the play, which begins streaming live tonight. You play multiple characters in Fires in the Mirror. How do you ensure that you are in the right headspace for the right role at the right time? I mean, the transitions are very fast. Yes, they are. Um, so there are 26 characters in a little over 90 minutes. <laughs> and, um, and we get to see a few of them twice. You know, it it's actually not complicated to keep them distinct because it's all in the language. And a certain person would never say thing a thing the way that another person says it, even when very deliberately you'll see that, you know, Anna, Anna has, has chosen passages where you hear people repeat the same phrase or the same idea, but it's all in the way that they use it. It's all in the way that they use it to get what they want. It's all in the way that they use it to shape your opinion, to get their point across. And as soon as you can understand, and this is sort of an, an acting fundamental that you know, I talk about a lot in my classes that I teach at Emory, it's always about the person's objective. It's not, it's not really about what they're feeling or you know, what they're, it's, it's always about what they're trying to get from the other person. We don't speak unless we want something. <laughs> so when we're speaking, we want something. And if we can figure out what it is that the person wants, then it becomes much easier to figure out who they are. 
Um, and so that's sort of the approach that we took in, in creating all these characters. And of course, many of them, we found primary source material. You can find videos of many of these people. Many of them are still on television today. I portray Reverend Al Sharpton twice in this piece. So, you know, he's somebody whose voice has been in my head almost my whole life. So that was an easy one. But it's, it's a fascinating process. Among the 26, which, if any of those characters, resonate the most with you? Just before we uh, got on this call, I went for a two-hour walk and, you know, said all the words of the play sort of out loud as I was walking, if anyone saw me wandering the streets of Atlanta. And it's so funny because I would have told you a few weeks ago that I couldn't stand this person. And I absolutely adored that person. And not only have most of those completely flipped, um, but that I have found something to love in each and every one of them, or at least something to believe in, which was really important. It's really important as an actor that you not judge your characters. No human being does a thing because they think it's bad. Human beings do bad things because they think it's going to get them what they want. Um, and so as an actor, it's always really important to not judge your characters and these particularly being real human beings with real journeys and, and real lives. And so that's been a part of the journey of this was trying to get to a place where I could love each of these people. There's one little girl I think maybe is my favorite. Her, the character's name is an anonymous girl and she's a middle schooler in Brooklyn. She might be my favorite. <laughs> Can you share what it is about her that you find endearing? I think it's that she has no agenda or that her agenda is simply to share in the way that children do, you know, that there's an excitement and a sort of wonder to the thing. And she's talking about incredibly complex issues. She's talking about how she talks about her class and she talks about the, the racial demographic of her class. Of course, she doesn't use the word demographic, but that's what she's talking about. And she says, you know, in my class, nobody's white, everybody's black, some are Hispanic. You can't call any of them Puerto Rican. They despise Puerto Ricans. I don't know why. And she, she goes into this whole thing. And when you listen to, you know, a child, maybe, you know, 13, 14 years old, talk about these things, you realize both the absurdity of the way that we choose to divide people and also the sort of profound tribalism that we live with, whether we like it or choose it or not, that at this young age, it's all, all the framework for everything that we're going to talk about in the play. It's one of the earlier monologues, the framework for everything that we talk about in the play and everything that happens and all of these hor horrific events. <laughs> we can't lay the responsibility at anyone's feet. It's a pre-existing condition. It's what we all live with. Mm. We talked about the tragic relevance. What is most stunning about the play is that despite being 30 years old, it feels so much of the moment with our reckoning with racial injustice now. What do you hope audiences will take away from seeing this show? Oh, I mean, one thing I'll say for sure is that we have to remember, especially in a moment where we're having so many conversations about systems, which is so important. No one talked about systemic racism when I was a child. You know, I was a child growing up in very segregated, a black child growing up in very segregated white Connecticut. No one ever would have ever talked about that. Racism was something that, you know, one person did to another person. And if you weren't doing that thing at that moment or calling that person a name, then, you, then, then there was no racism, right? So it's really important now that we're talking about systems and institutions and history. At the same time, we have to remember that we are all people with individual experiences, lives, opinions, dysfunctions, you know, histories, all of it living inside these sometimes somewhat often broken systems. So it's the humanity of people that is the wild variable. And even if we were to fix all the systems, if I could wave a magic wand, there's still the part that we carry inside us. So I guess part of what I would hope is that people can, can sort of just take a moment to process 
the humanity of other different kinds of people inside of, of the work that we're trying to do with the systems. And then the second thing for me personally is that in the last year, you know, I had some incredibly low moments, as many of us did, isolation with the pandemic and the uprisings for racial justice and the deaths, so many deaths, so many videos, so many stories, so many people. Mm. And the thing that I finally would always find my solace in was history and not necessarily a sort of idea that we shall overcome, although I believe that we do over time, but that it was ever thus, which for me brings some peace, that there is nothing particularly new and awful about the things we are living through as new and awful as they may feel to us, that we can continue to have faith and keep working and keep marching forward. And so the, this particular mirror of 30 years ago and this particular moment in this particular place in Brooklyn, it does give me solace and it does give me hope because there are real people, real human beings who you will see in this play who have changed and evolved so much in 30 years. And you can find them, you can look them up and you can see how they speak and think differently now than they did then. And that is progress. January Lavoie co-directs and stars in Fires in the Mirror. The one-woman play will stream live from theatrical outfit with selected showtimes throughout June. For more information, go to wabe.org slash citylight. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Lost Art Music Festival was founded in Atlanta during the pandemic by Jim Etheridge, and the inaugural event takes place tomorrow at Foxhall Resort in Douglasville, Georgia. A diverse lineup of Americana acts will perform, and the headliner is St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Paul Janeway is the founder and singer of that rock and roll soul band. He's with us now via Zoom. Paul Janeway, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. I read that you were training to be a minister. Does St. Paul in the title of your band come from your religious study? Um, to call it religious study, I think would be uh, putting it, putting a nice bow on. I, I wanted to be a preacher, you know, kind of more backwoods <laughs> style, but I actually didn't come up with the name of the band. The bass player who also co-founded the band, he, he wanted to, he thought it'd be really interesting to call me St. Paul because I don't, ah. I don't really, um, you know, have many vices or very outward vices. I don't drink, I've never drank or smoked or anything like that. So he, he thought that would be funny. Of course, with the preacher background too, you know, he thought it's kind of tongue in cheek a little bit, but also kind of, you know, he wanted to name me something. I, I, I didn't want my name in the band, but you know, you get named one thing for one show and then it turns into a nine year thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, where did the broken bones come from? So the first song that me and Jesse ever wrote in his living room for this was called Broken Bones and Pocket Change. And the line goes, all she left me with was broken bones and pocket change. So all she left me with was hardly any money in, in this band. And uh, so it kind of worked out that way. Young love Let's go.
it's unique. You don't have to worry about being mistaken for any other band. No, no, you don't. We don't get confused for a lot of different things. That's for sure. <laughs> Paul, please tell us about the move from training to be a preacher to pursuing a degree in accounting to becoming the lead singer of a soul band. Well, I mean, it's a convoluted story, but kind of the shortened version is, as anyone who grows up, I grew up in a small town in Alabama and, you know, wasn't exposed to very much. And, you know, the church was kind of the epicenter of my life. And, you know, it was speaking in tongues and healing and all that, that stuff. And I think as I got older and I got a little more worldly, it got towards, you know, 18, 19, I started, my worldview started expanding a little bit. And I, there's things I started kind of disagreeing with, um, you know, maybe what they thought about things socially. And I just, I kind of started kind of falling out of love with it and even developed some venom for it. Um, but I still, I still continued to play and sing, um, but I never really thought pursued it as a career. You know, I was working at a mechanic shop and when the economy went so bad in I think 2008, and I lost my job and was on unemployment. And I was like, man, I got to figure my life out. And at the, in that same time, I, I met who would be my future wife in that, that time span. And I was like, man, I got I to gotta get my life figured out. So I decided, well, I kind of like accounting. So I went back to school. I, I was never a big school, you know, big, big in the school, but I went back to school, started learning, you know, to to be an accountant and all while I still play music, but really kind of thought, you know, it was going to kind of die down and not really do any, not be anything that whatever, it'd just be kind of a fun hobby. And then me and Jesse, who we'd always been friends through music and we kind of did our last hurrah. We had a, I was paying for an EP with my Pell Grant. Oh my. Yeah. And so we, we uh, made this little EP. It was called St. Paul and the Broken Bones, greetings from Birmingham, Alabama. And it ended up, being something and uh that's kind of i was kind of you know on my way out i didn't think that that music was going to be something that i was going to do for a living or anything like that so it um pretty wild story it is and uh, you mentioned your struggle with the kind of church you were brought up in I listened to a 2014 conversation you had with NPR's David Green, and you said that your faith is important to you, but you struggle with the church itself. Seven years later, what's your relationship with your faith and the church? You know, that's a that's always a interesting. I always feel like if if I had a you know, a, a relationship status with, with religion or God or anything like that. I always say, I'd always feel like it says it's complicated, but I feel like I, I've definitely softened a bit. You know, I, we just had our first, me and my wife just had our first child in September and I feel a little bit more, I think I gravitated towards that a little bit more. I mean, that's the first time like I've probably prayed in a very long time and felt some sort of connection. And I think I've softened a little bit. I still, you know, I'm, I'm what, you know, definitely people would consider a very liberal guy and growing up in a very conservative area, especially in Alabama and church, you know, it's hard to find your footing there um, because there's things that I do really find beautiful about, you know, my, you know, faith and, and really the essence of it is a beautiful thing. I just don't think people focus on that. I think, it's all the other stuff people focus on, but, you know, loving other people being, you know, humility, grace, mercy, all of those things are beautiful things. If we, you know, really do apply them to our life. And so I've definitely don't have the same amount of venom per se that I probably did even probably seven years ago. So you have retained the spirituality, the respect for basic human values and all the good stuff that goes with religion it seems yeah i i would i would say that's fair i mean i would definitely say that's fair i feel like that's the beauty there's a beauty to it that i think i still kind of uh live my i live my life by that code in a lot of ways one thing i always struggle with now is you know i was taught and still believe that like when you do good you're not supposed to like 
tell people about it. And I feel like that's so anti-social media now (laughs) 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 that that it's so hard to, you know what I mean? It's like, what are those things? But I still believe that. I still believe that like, you shouldn't be posting about all the great things you do, but um, it's, uh, I, so I do, I retain some of that and think it's, it's really important as a person and and values that I'll, I would want to instill in, in my child. Paul Janeway is lead singer and founder of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. They will headline the Lost Art Music Festival at Foxhall Resort in Douglasville tomorrow. Well, watching you perform, there's so much passion in, in your singing, in your sound, in your movement, and that could be a lot like a very charismatic preacher at the pulpit. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like to say that it is it is very much like church, except you know it, it accepts all folks. There's a lot more swearing uh, <laughs> and and probably a lot more drinking, and that's that's about that's the kind of atmosphere we have. In a weird way, maybe you know you've you've created this thing, this entity. It's I mean, I think that's what music presents is a very spiritual thing. It's all about about us having human connectivity with somebody. That's why this going through this pandemic is. I think people really do miss that, and it is it is a beautiful thing because you know you get to be kind of feel like a conduit for this this moment. It doesn't happen every night, but sometimes it does. And so I know for me, like it's not going to be a lack. It's not going to be for a lack of trying. And I do. I feel like that passion is really important. Hello, sweetheart. sound. Uh, You've been, the band has been described as retro soul. Are you comfortable with that? You know, I, I always leave descriptions of our music and everything like that to, you know, PR people and and record stores. Nowadays, especially, I don't really look at what we do as, as really a genre. I do think obviously we are influenced by you know, Muscle Shoals, but we're also influenced by David Bowie or, you know, Radiohead or it, it varies. I think the the canvas is pretty open for us for what we want to do. But yeah, I would say definitely early on when we first started, like, you know, the first record is definitely more in that vein. And I think we've gradually kind of moved away from that label as time has gone on. And early on, people were very surprised to discover you and your band are white because listening to you on recordings, they just presumed you weren't. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I've never really, I I didn't think about that till the band, till we, till the band showed up, you know, Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the guys grew up in Muscle Shoals and anyone who knows the history about Muscle Shoals knows that knows the Swampers and, and that was, you know, white R&B band um, that did so many of the great Muscle Shoals records. And yeah, so, you know, obviously it's, it's a soulful sound and things like that. I've never, you know, I really don't think, oh, you sound this way or that way, right? And I've always just kind of, you know, we sound the way we sound. It is made of your steel. Oh, it's made of pure steel now, is it not? You can't let it cry, you can't let it cry, I'm talking. At the poor end of the street. Populated half the city, child, what did I 
have said we're an Alabama band. It's who we are. Is that referring to the Muscle Shoals sound, or is your Birmingham-based band its own blend of styles? I I would say it's definitely heavily influenced by Muscle Shoals. I think over time, you know, I mean, we also in the city of Birmingham had Sun Ra, and right. So yeah. so I think it's I think it's a a mix of a lot of things. Obviously, we want to have a good rhythm section, which lends itself to more muscle shoals with the, the bass and the drums. And and uh, I think that's always going to be key to what we do musically. Paul Janeway is lead singer of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation with Paul Janeway, lead singer of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. They will headline the Lost Art Music Festival tomorrow. Here, Paul talks about the title of their latest album, Young Sick Camellia. So the title comes from a, uh, a Caravaggio painting, Young Sick Bacchus. I love that time period of art. Uh, I'm a big Caravaggio fan, but really what it kind of came down to is that that was supposedly a self-reflection of him in a feeble and kind of sickly state. And so I wanted to obviously kind of replicate that with Young Sick Camellia as Camellia is the state flower of Alabama kind of as a record of self-reflection and kind of like withering, but also reflection of family ties and things like that. great producer by the name of Jack Splash who had worked with more modern you know he'd worked with like Kendrick Lamar and you know he just got actually he just uh, I know that they just released the the new Valerie June record that came out that was really great Um, just a great producer but very much you know you know he's an LA based guy not necessarily in our wheelhouse as far as like people you go oh yeah that's who they should work with but we wanted to try something different and so there's some funk elements to it. There's some kind of singer-songwriter elements to it. It's kind of a kaleidoscope of, of, of sound for us, and, and it was really a lot of fun. And inspired by an Italian Renaissance painter. Yeah, yeah, with Garavaggio, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> where, where did your fascination with Caravaggio begin? You know, honestly, for me, I growing up in a small town in Alabama, 
I wasn't exposed to that, to, to art in general. You know, this wasn't an emphasis. Actually, when I went back to school, I took an art history class and I fell in love. And the teacher was, you know, honestly, if I wasn't trying to, I was like, I ain't going to make no money <laughs> getting an art history degree. So, I was, you know, it was more practical choice, but I really fell in love. Um, and, and really, it kind of sparked this whole interest with, you know, I remember, you know, seeing, um, I never forget seeing like a Mark Rothko and understanding like, what, why is that? what's the importance of abstract expressionism or, you know, and you just, you go through, I just really started getting interested in art history and I still, you know, try my best to read a, read a lot about it and talk to people who are a lot more educated in that subject. But, but Caravaggio, my wife worked for university and she would go to Italy with a group of students every January. And so I would go with her, they would go to Rome and Florence. And so ever so often, you know, I would go with her on these trips and you see all this beautiful art just sitting in chapels and, and, and things. And there was a few, the conversion of, of, of Saul, which is a Caravaggio. And I remember seeing it and, you know, it changes your life. Sometimes when you see great art, it changes your life and it impacts you. And I just always liked the, the lighting and the darkness of it and how the parameters in which they had to use the church and, you know, it was just really interesting, and I fell in love with it and got obsessed with it. And so, Paul, you were destined to become an artist, whether a musical artist or a visual artist. That beauty and self-expression seems very much connected to your soul. I would like to think so. I think I think uh, I've I feel like uh, you know you you go through life trying to find the things that pique your interest, and fortunately. I've found a few of those things. And I think obviously just, you know, when you say you like art, that's such a broad statement, but I really do just try to devour it and try to be as humble about it because I'm not, I don't have a PhD in it. So you don't have to, and you don't, you're right. You're recording the titles inspired by that. Tell us please how, you weave in recorded conversation with your papa in this album. So I think the initial idea was to kind of have this, we, uh, you know, I was spoken word parts, you know, are not obviously going to be streamed <laughs> as much, but I think, you know, when you listen to pieces of, of albums and things like I really want it, you know, I really had a, we were, I never forget, we were opening up for Holland Oats. And I really fell in love with the idea of trying to weave in this family dynamic of my father and his father and kind of how we get stuck in those, those trends of, you know, sharing DNA. And that, that includes, that includes sharing the problems of that DNA and, and so on and so forth and really exploring that. So, you know, I really wanted to, with my papal to, I wanted to record a conversation. And so we were opening up for Holland Oats and I called him and I was like, Hey, is it okay if I, it's just a phone conversation. Is it okay if I record a phone conversation? And he was like, yeah. I mean, he didn't care. He, he didn't. I was like, well, this might be on a record. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't, he used some expertise. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, this wasn't the preacher part of the family. Uh, no, 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 this, this is not, no, <laughs> no, this is not the preacher part by any stretch. You know, we had that, we had an hour and a half conversation. I recorded it and then we used pieces of it. And then, you know, he ended up passing away before the album came out. He had, gotten a pretty serious case of, of cancer and unfortunately passed before the album came out. So I don't think he, he ever heard it. So yeah, but I just thought it was an interesting, you know, it, it kind of took a different tone when that happened, you know, it kind of was a little haunting. Sure. Um, it also kind of memorialized a little bit. So it was a, it was a, it's a really, it'll always be an interesting record to me. We, uh, there was four or five of us in there, in there working that day, and it was storming all day. And, and uh, we all got under something, and, and uh, it blowed the level of the church there, and right across the street from us, and the old church over there, and all the left was the steps and the basement. What has it been like? during the past year for you and your band? Have you 
performed virtually? Yes, we have. I mean, we've done all sorts of weird things where we, you know, we've tried some of the socially distant shows. I, just to be frank, like they're sometimes a little awkward because you, you feel like the gloves are on and, and you try your best to do, you know, whatever the CDC has recommended us do. And it's it's been a really tough thing to navigate because, you know, we just played a show that, you know, recently and it was, you know, people had to be vaccinated and so on and so forth. And, but you're like, there's a part of you that's just like, you know, you want people to rush the stage, but if that happens, <laughs> you've got to like, you're like, it's weird. It's a weird, there's a real, real weird social interaction going on there that is not typical concert action, but you know, all of us, you know, we've been really busy recording music. We tried to do little things here and there just to feel like there was momentum because I think what obviously uh, all of us, like it just stopped. And so I tried my best to come up with things, even if it was, you know, menial task to just make everybody in the band feel like, all right, we're doing something. Did you write more? We did. We, We wrote a lot. We wrote a lot, which is, I know some bands couldn't write at all and some bands wrote a lot and we were on the road a lot. So we're excited kind of to see, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you, you write all this stuff and then you've kind of got to figure out, okay, what do we do with this? <laughs> and uh, so we're still figuring that out. But I mean, it's, it's been weird for me because, uh, you know, when at, in March of 2020, our business shut down, a lot of businesses shut down. You didn't, you looked at what was happening in New York and you thought, oh my God, like, you know, this is going to be really bad and you didn't know if you're going to live. And so, but that previous February or that February is when my wife found out she was pregnant. And so it's been a really weird, I'm grateful to be home and I've got to experience all of that with her, which would not have been the case. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's such, you know, tragedy and sadness. It's, it's a weird, it's been weird. It's been a weird, I've had a lot of mixed emotions but I have been grateful that I've been home to enjoy my, my seven-month-old daughter now. That's beautiful. The Lost Art Music Festival will be among the earliest in-person festivals in Atlanta in over a year. How does it feel to headline the event? Well, it's always good to headline because that's more money. <laughs> but... uh it's headlining is always one of those things and coming back I think you just got to take the plunge eventually you know all the band everybody in the band's vaccinated so we're you know we're raring to go I think it's always great I mean for me I love the Atlanta area the Atlanta area has been so good to this band it's I mean Atlanta was where I went when all the big shows happened because they wouldn't come to Birmingham they'd come to Atlanta it's only a two-hour drive I'm excited, obviously, to get to get back in that area. I, I mean, honestly, I'm just excited to play shows. Just to be honest with you, I, I, you know, we're we're playing new material, and like we've had, we've been in this weird position. Like we've we've got you know changing up the show a little bit. So it's been fun to experiment with that and and just kind of see people's reactions. Um, yeah, well, nothing comes close to the experience of live in person performances yeah i think it's good for everybody honestly i think you know i was thinking about like going you know going to the movie theater and watching a movie and going to a concert there's very few moments in your life especially now where your focus is really just on one thing and i think to have that human moment or that i almost feel like a spiritual moment when you interact with a piece of art or or a show or a movie or anything like that like I think it's just kind of piece of the soul and we've gone a year without doing it. Paul Janeway is lead singer and founder of the band St. Paul and the Broken Bones. They will headline the Lost Art Music Festival at Foxhall Resort in Douglasville tomorrow. More information can be found on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Synchronicity Theater and Bronze Lens series of June events 
soar. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And extra thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you would follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to other interviews from our show's archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.